and 12 for our text here tonight, verses 11 and 12. Thank you. I have some prayer letters here for us for later, too. All right, verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be in these two verses for the next couple of weeks. Um, but before we get to them, we need to kind of rehearse uh, the context and rehearse um, where we've been since we started 2 Thessalonians. And as we started this second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, we began by highlighting Paul's greeting to them as a church. And we made, known of the, made note of the fact that first of all, they were a church that he was very proud of. If you look in, in verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. And we made note of the fact that Paul was very proud of this church, as young as they were, for their spiritual growth. We, we note where Paul said, we give thanks for you, it simply means that he's grateful, he's thankful. But then he said in verse 4 that we glory in you in the churches of God. That meant that he was making his boast or he was bragging on them as a church. And then verse 3, he said, as it is meet. Notice where he said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. That means it's fitting. It means it was deserved. So in other words, Paul says, I, I'm so, we are so grateful for you, and we're so proud of you, and in fact, we're so proud of you that we are regularly speaking about you, bragging on you among other churches, and you deserve it. And so Paul notes that they were a church to be proud of, and then we began to highlight the things that Paul was actually thankful for, and bragging on them about. In verse 1, we noted that they were a church full of genuine believers. Paul said, you are in God, our Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in Christ. And we made note of the fact that today, because of a watered-down gospel, because of a, a lack of understanding of repentance and not even preaching repentance, churches today are full of unregenerate people. That's not what a New Testament church is supposed to be. If they are saved, a lot of times it's just shallow Christianity at best. But not for these people. They were genuine. And it was evidenced by the fact that verse 3 says that they were growing in their faith. 
Verse 3, Paul said, We thank the Lord for you. We're bound to thank God for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. That word bound there means to owe or to be under obligation. And it's fitting. It's deserved. We're under obligation to be thankful. Why? Because your faith, your faith means their conviction of truth. That conviction of truth is growing exceedingly. That phrase meant to be above or beyond ordinary degree. In other words, Paul says your faith has grown even in spite of the persecutions that you're enduring. Your faith has grown to a degree greater than what I even expected. A reason to be thankful, a reason to rejoice and to thank God for them. Not only that, they were a church that was growing in their love. This was also evidence of their genuineness in Christ. The second part of verse 3, Paul said, Love every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. Notice that phrase, every one of you all. I think we could just pause right there and just sort of stop and just kind of say, wow, for a second. Because apparently all the members of this church had this love for all the other members of the church. Can that be said of us? I don't think that that is a common thing in American churches today. But Paul said, you, because or in spite of your persecutions, your faith is growing. The love that you have for each other, every single one of you has it. And it's growing and increasing as well. Here was a church that was being squeezed and a church that was being pressed by trial and by persecution. But the thing that was being squeezed out of it was actually growing faith and growing love. Not running for the hills. And we made the application back then that, you know, trying times, difficult times, even times of persecution, they're going to smoke out those who aren't true. They're not going to stick around for it. They're not going to endure it. They're going to become hostile. They won't make sacrifices for others. They won't show their love or bear another's burdens, and they won't do that because they're always so preoccupied with their own life. I think that is a common thing in churches today. What are you doing to edify the body? What are you doing to build and grow the church of Jesus Christ? How many just come and then they leave? Never here for other things, never uh, making sacrifices for, for the good of the whole, for the well-being of the body, always taking. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case generally in our church, but it's something to think about, isn't it? Paul said, the whole church, you have the same love one for another. That means that you're sacrificing for the good of the whole, bearing one another's burdens. And the reason that people won't is because they're so preoccupied with their own life and mark it down when trouble comes, when persecution comes, they won't be sticking around. Paul was proud of them because of how they endured and how they were growing in spite of the persecutions and tribulations that they were facing. The second thing that we noted in this passage was verses 6 through 10, where Paul encourages them in their persecution. So he says he's proud of them at first, 
And then he's trying to encourage them in their persecutions. In verse 6, he said, It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And we spent a considerable amount of time in these verses. But the main thrust here was that in order to encourage them to continue on and to continue to endure, Paul reminds them of the coming of Jesus Christ, who is their great hope. Verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And Paul's main thrust in these verses was that Jesus Christ is the one who's keeping track. Those who are troubling you, he's keeping track. It's a just thing with God to recompense that trouble. He's also going to keep his word, and he's going to come again. And when he does come again, it's going to affect this whole world, but it's going to affect people differently. It's going to produce two things. We said it was going to produce rest, but also retribution. Rest for the believers, verse 10, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. It's going to produce retribution, though, for the unbeliever, because verse 8 and 9 said, "...in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." And so Paul seeks to encourage them to press on with the reminder that Jesus Christ is faithful. He's going to come just as He said, and it's going to produce rest for you. So he's seeking to encourage them with this reminder of the return of the Lord. Not only that, but Paul seeks to encourage them with something else. And that brings us to our text verses here tonight. Verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the first two words of verse 11. He says, Wherefore also. And you've heard this said many times, whenever you see a wherefore or a therefore, you go back and find out what it's there for, right? And so we've done that. We've looked at what this is here for, what he's just been talking about. And Paul prays for them because of persecution and trial. Not only was he trying to encourage them to continue on with the fact that Christ is coming again, he was encouraging them in their persecution. They were enduring Christ is keeping track. He's coming back again. He says, but I'm also praying for you. I'm also praying for you in your trials. And let me just stop here for a second and make an application. Many times, our prayer is very self-centered and even shallow. The prayers of Christians are often misdirected and very short-sighted, and in fact, selfish. What do Christians typically pray for? Well, it's not uncommon at all to hear prayer for health. It's not wrong to pray for health. But a lot of times, that's like the big deal with people. I think you see it in not so much typically the missionaries that we support, but I've seen it many times in missionary prayer letters. The one thing that they focus in on is our health, our health, our health. 
Not that it's wrong to pray for help, but people pray for help. They pray for happiness. They pray for success. They pray for personal benefits. They pray for comfort in their life. They'll pray for solutions to fix all their little problems in life. They pray for a healed body, a home. Pray for food, a job with more money. Things like that. And those things certainly make up a part of life, yes. But those are the kinds of things that were very, very low on Paul's priority list. They're also very low on the priority list of Jesus Christ because Jesus was the one who said, basically take no thought for what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on, knowing full well that God supplies all of those things. In fact, what you need to get on with is getting on with the matters that relate to the kingdom of God. Those are the important things. James 4 and verse 3 says, Ye ask and receive not. And here's the reason why. Because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. And that tells us something. It tells us that so very often we not only pray for the wrong things, but we also pray for the wrong reasons. Well, we're going to look at these two verses over the next couple of weeks, and we won't get all the way through here tonight, certainly, but we're going to consider two things from these verses. We're going to consider Paul's prayer, but secondly, we're going to consider Paul's purpose. Verse 11 shows us Paul's prayer. He says, wherefore also we pray always for you. And then verse 12 shows us the purpose, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him. And so these are the two things that we're going to consider. Let's start in verse 11 with Paul's prayer. Verse 11, again, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. What is it that Paul prays for? So we have the context He's proud of them as a church. He's encouraging them in the midst of their persecutions, reminding them that Christ is coming again. But in the meantime, Paul's trying to encourage them with this thought, I'm praying for you. But what exactly is he praying for, for this church? It's certainly not for wealth. It's certainly not for happiness. It's certainly not for a job with more money. It's not even for their health at all. The very first thing that he says is, I'm praying for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Counting them worthy of this calling. What call is he talking about? What call is that? Well, we have to remember what the context is. The context of this, of this verse is the context of suffering. This is what he's talking about, that God would count you worthy of suffering. They had been called to suffer for Christ Jesus. Paul prayed for them in their suffering, and here it is, friend, not that they would escape the suffering, but that they would be counted worthy of God in the suffering. All of a sudden, this becomes pretty powerful. Paul's prayer is pretty deep. 
It's not for petty, temporal things. It is for the deeply spiritual. The word counted here in verse 11, that our God would count you worthy. The word count means to make, that God would make you worthy. The word worthy means deemed, fit, or deserving. So that God would make you fit or deserving of this calling. This calling, that word, I I was blown away by this. The word actually means an invitation. That the Lord Jesus Christ, that Paul is praying for them, that God would make them fit and deserving in this great invitation, this invitation to suffer with Him. They were invited to suffer with Christ, that Christ might receive the reward of His sufferings. And friend, we are invited to do the same thing, to suffer with Christ or for Christ. Listen, we pray for deliverance for ourselves. When we think about what's happening in the world and we look at Bible prophecy and we see what's happening in America and we start to imagine what could be coming and we imagine this and that, what is the first thought in our mind? Oh, I hope I don't have to suffer. I don't want to suffer. Lord, protect us from suffering. Even though I don't know what the suffering might entail. Why is that? Because our natural bent is toward comfort. We will do anything that we can possibly do to keep ourselves comfortable. To enjoy this life that we're living. I want my lifestyle and I want my friends and I want my fun. And I want good money and I want to be able to do these things. And I don't want anything to disrupt my happiness. Am I connecting? That's what we're bent towards. That's our natural inclination. I don't want hardship in my life. And we start to pray for deliverance for ourselves. You know, when it comes to to being about our mission for Christ as a New Testament church, to preach the gospel to every creature, that job belongs to this church, but a church functions according to its members. So that job belongs to you. But what is our inclination so often. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be a vocal witness for Christ because I will look weird. I will, I will, I will find persecution or I, I will be made a fool of and I don't want to be counted as a fool for Christ. Because I'm going to be different. Have you ever had those feelings? Come on. I'm not super spiritual, so you can, you can be honest with me. All right? This is so often the very reason why churches or people are not involved in evangelism. Because the bottom line is they do not want to be uncomfortable and they don't want to suffer or be made a fool of, or be counted as a fool for Christ. So our tendency is to sort of, well, we want to win them over by, you know, being friendly with them. And hey, we need to be friendly. We absolutely should. We need to represent Christ well. But see if we can sort of 
be like them or sort of kind of, you know, we're all basically the same and there's not too much of a distinction and distance. This is why there's not separation in a lot of people's lives either. I don't want to be separated from this world because I will look different and I will be counted as a fool. Paul said, I'm praying for you in the middle of your persecution, not so that you can escape it, but so that God would make you fit, count you worthy of this great invitation to come and suffer with Christ. You know, we often pray not only for deliverance for ourselves, but a lot of times we pray for deliverance for Brother Noah. Now, it's not wrong to pray that he would be invisible to wicked and unreasonable men. That is not wrong to do. However, that may not be God's good pleasure to accomplish his will. You notice the very next thing that Paul says after he says, count you worthy of this calling. He says, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. What is the primary thing that God is concerned about? Fulfilling His good will. That's the thing that He's concerned about. And if suffering was part of God's good will and good pleasure, then Paul says, I'm praying for you that God makes you fit and worthy in that. Because it's a great invitation of God that He's giving. Paul didn't pray for their deliverance. Only that they would be fit, deemed fit and endure in this great invitation to suffer. The question that comes to my mind then is how am I deemed fit? Counted worthy of God. And it's God. Notice what Paul says. We pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling, this invitation. How is it that God makes me or counts me worthy of this calling? How am I deemed fit? Is it by my own convictions to stand? You know, the world is falling apart. Churches are falling away. But I am convicted. I'm going to stand on the truth no matter what. Is it by my conviction to stand for truth? Is it by my high pain threshold, because, you know, if I stand for truth, it's going to bring persecution in my life. That might mean something. Listen, I might find myself in jail. I might find myself worse off than that. But you know what? I'm not going to budge. Is it by my conviction for truth, my high pain threshold, by determination not to move an inch? Is that what makes me worthy Again, you need to understand what the word count means. It means to make. It means to make. That God would make you fit of this great calling. Here becomes the key to the whole thing. And I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss 
for Christ. The things that were temporal things that maybe enhanced his temporal life a little bit, the things that were gained in his life, whatever that was, maybe it was reputation, maybe it was wealth, maybe it was other things, whatever it was that was gained to him or lifted him, those were the things that he counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The word win here means to gain. And so Paul says there's something much bigger, much greater than the things that were gained to me in life. Those are things I counted as loss. They're not a pile of dung, actually, because, listen, I count those things uh, as lost so that I can gain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, and I've suffered the loss of all things, and, and the reason, or so that I can win or gain Jesus Christ in my life. Now he says, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here's the thing, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. Paul says, I count all those things as lost because my higher priority is to gain Jesus Christ. It's Christ's likeness that is the focus here. More of Christ, more of Him in my life, even if that means through suffering. He says, I've, I, 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 I've suffered the loss of all things, he says. And he says, and, and I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. The word fellowship of his sufferings, it means a partnership. In partnership with Christ. There's an invitation to come and to experience more of Jesus Christ. And now notice what he says in verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The word attain means to arrive. If by any means I might arrive unto the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? Basically what he's talking about is perfection. Sinless perfection. There's only one who is sinless and perfect. It's Jesus Christ. He says the goal is to arrive like Jesus Christ. Then he says, not as though I had already attained. That word attained means gotten a hold. Not as, not as though I've already gotten a hold of this. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. I'm pursuing this. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. The word apprehend means to possess. So he says, it's not like I've gotten a hold of this yet, or we're perfect at it, but I'm pursuing after this so that I can possess the thing, the same thing that I am possessed of, which is Jesus Christ. He's talking about the focus and the drive to know and understand and learn and be like Jesus Christ. 
How am I deemed fit? Well, it's not by my conviction. It's not by my pain threshold. It's not by my determination not to budge. It's not that at all. It's Him. It's Christ. who. It's God who makes me fit for this purpose. He is the one who's going to make you fit. Now, if you look back in our text, notice that Paul says, he wraps it up in verse 12, where he gives really the bottom line for it all, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and he in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by God's grace that we are made fit or worthy. There's a great invitation to be in partnership with Christ and His sufferings. And the result of that is that we would know Him more intimately. Notice what else Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7, Second Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you." Paul says here, the, the thing that's going on in the persecution and the suffering and the distress and all of these things is, is and, and, and the power to do so, that it might be of God and not of us. And the result is that the life of Christ would be made known in me and I would be more like Him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12. Peter writing to persecuted saints as well. And he says in verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now he uses the word strange two times. In that verse, we'll read the other verses in a minute. But he uses the word strange two times. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Two different words, two different meanings. The first word strange means surprise with confusion. So in other words, don't be surprised and don't be confused over the fiery trial which is going to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. That word means alien or foreign. So don't be surprised and confused when trial comes into your life as if that is some alien or foreign thing to you. No. 
Don't be surprised by that. Why? Because Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have trouble. You're going to suffer persecution. It's a common thing. It should be a, a real thing. And these saints were experiencing real persecution. But then he says in verse 13, notice this. Instead of thinking it strange and being surprised and being confused, instead of that, he says, rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Isn't that interesting that Peter says, in the midst of trial, instead of being surprised and confused at what's going on, instead of that, we should rejoice. And the reason we should rejoice is because we're actually really blessed. When we suffer... The glory of God rests upon us. It's God's strength in us. The passage teaches us that we become partakers of Christ's suffering. And His Spirit and His glory rests upon us. Suffering, listen, friend, here it is. Suffering is an opportunity for God to glorify Himself in your life. So when we pray, instead of praying for deliverance, Lord, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel the pain. I don't want to feel the hardship. I want a life of ease. Instead of praying for deliverance, we ought to understand that this is a great invitation of God to be a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. And it's not even really up to me to have to endure. But the Lord, in his, by His grace, can equip me and make me fit so that He is glorified in my life. It's an opportunity for God to glorify Himself. Paul's prayer for this church was not to get out of their persecutions and their sufferings, but that God would make them fit in the suffering. We're going to talk about next time the second part of verse 11. Not only that God would count you worthy of this calling, but also that He would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. You mean God has a good purpose in suffering? Yeah, He does. And then He says, and a work of faith with power. We're going to talk about those two things, fulfilling God's will and His pleasure and a work of faith and power being done in our lives through the suffering that God may allow to, bring, uh, to happen in your life and mine, but certainly in these people's lives. And then in verse 12, we'll talk about the purpose. Why did Paul pray these things for them? Paul encouraged them by saying, I'm praying for you and your sufferings, but not that you would escape them but that you would be made fit for this great invitation that you've been given by God. Because what it will produce is God's good will and God's good pleasure being done in your life, and it's going to produce a work of faith and power inside of you as well. So, let me wrap it up here for tonight with this question. 
what do you pray for? When it comes down to you, your life, your family, the people in your world, the people you love, your church, for what do you pray? What do you desire for yourself? What do you desire for the people that you love? What do you desire for the people in your church? What do you really want? Well, our natural bent is to pray, Lord, deliver me. Not, Lord, make me fit and equip me for whatever trial it is that you want me to go through. You want to pray for one another? You take a lesson from the Apostle Paul. This is how we pray. Why? Because these are the things that concern God. These are the spiritual things, the important things that concern God. Think on that for a little while, especially in light of the days that we live in. Our imaginations can go this way and they can go that way, and we can work really hard to sort of maneuver and try to position ourselves so that we can not have discomfort in our life. Nobody likes it. That's our natural bent. But you know what? It's not really up to me to endure. God can give His grace and make me so that He is glorified. And that was what Paul was praying for for this church. I think it's a good example and worthy of our meditation and our thoughts for the days that we live in. Amen? Pray for the things that concern God, not for the things of personal comfort or, quote, happiness. God, you've heard this said before, too. God is not primarily concerned with my happiness, but He is concerned with holiness. He wants to make me like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that You'd encourage us and challenge us as well in our thinking through the Word of God here tonight and equip Your people. Prepare us, Lord, for Your will to be done no matter what that is, that the good pleasure of your will is accomplished in us, that Christ is indeed glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.